The Colorado Equals Security Podcast is your local source for regional security news, local events, and interviews with key individuals in the region. Now, here are your hosts, Rob Reck and Alex Wood. Welcome to Colorado Equal Security. This is episode number 20. This is the newscast for June 19th, 2017. Uh, and we are here ready to talk about security news. Alex, how you doing? I'm good. How are you, Rob? I, I cannot complain. I just got out of a, uh, a family event. My The rest of my family, everyone but me, is a Taekwondo student right now. Wow. And I had the opportunity to, to watch them gain their brown belt. So they're consistently kicking your ass. Is that um, what you're saying? My, my uh, nine-year-old son literally elbowed me in the groin and uh, twisted my arm tonight. Nice. He wanted to demonstrate what he's learned. Uh, I, on the other hand, spent the evening uh, doing go-karts and uh, putt-putt golf and uh, other things like that. Less violent family activities. Less violent, but uh, slightly more, uh, probably slightly more entertaining and less painful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, so anything you want to chat about before we jump into the news? Uh, well, it is Father's Day this weekend, so uh, happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. Are you going to uh, spend any time with with your father? Uh, I will not get to see my father. He uh, he is on the other side of the country. Um, I'm sure I will call him, yeah. um, but happy Father's Day to him as well. well fantastic. Um, but yeah, happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there that are listening. I'll get to hang out with my family uh, in Chicago. So we're recording a couple days early this week. I'll get to hang out with my family in Chicago as I'm, I'm there for, for Ping's big industry event. Um, and Kristen tells me I get to pick what we do on Father's Day, but Ooh. it's in Chicago and I have no idea what that's going to be. So maybe next week we can talk about it. Exactly. Something to look forward to. All right. Let's go ahead and dive into the news. Um, top story of this week is that Denver is named the number eight city in the U.S. for as a tech city. We're number eight. We're <laughs> number eight. Oh. I guess the good news is we are ranked number one for educated employees, educated workforce. You know, and I had heard that in uh, in previous years too. Lots of educated folks in Colorado, which uh, I think helps with uh, the quality employees that we have around here. Yeah, and that is a big part of what draws folks in. Uh, you know, as we were looking at this article, and I, I you know, suggest folks take a take a minute to click through the article and, and skim it, see what's interesting there. There was one thing that really jumped out at me, which was they have a graph on there showing the number of tech workers throughout the US over the last, I don't remember what it was, 20, 30 years. And you see this huge spike in 2001 and then it goes right back down after the dot, you know, the, the dot com bur- bubble burst. Um, but what really surprised me is as of now, we still haven't reached the number of tech employees as we had back in 2001. Yeah, that is kind of crazy. Um, you would think with the growth in technology since then, we would have more. But, you know, one thing that I was thinking about is, uh, you know, a lot of those sort of entry-level technology jobs, uh, call center workers and other mm-hmm. things like that have been outsourced to other countries. So I think that we may have a smaller pool of, of overall tech jobs, even though the, the uh, technology industry as a whole has grown. Well, I, I guarantee there were a whole lot fewer security professionals in 2001 than there are now. Th- that's true. I can guarantee yeah. that as well. All right. Uh, so next on the list, we had uh, Amazon has more news. I know we, we keep talking about Amazon just because they're doing some pretty cool stuff, right? They are doing cool stuff. So um, the Amazon Prime Now service is available in Denver. Um, I, I feel a little left out because I think Denver is like the 30th city to, f- to finally get this. I didn't see that. <laughs> um, but, uh, but now if you want something from Amazon, you can have it delivered potentially within uh, two hours, some, of, some things within one hour. Wow, that's, that's pretty neat. And, and if you really need to have that new iPhone case, um, yeah. it can come same day. And it, it's no extra charge either. Yeah, and, and also some uh, other breaking news today that wasn't actually on the mm-hmm. list was that uh, Amazon made an offer to buy Whole Foods, um, which I think is pretty interesting. Again, not security related, but uh, Amazon is going to be our our tech overlords and our grocery overlords and everything else overloaded yeah. pretty soon. The Kroger slash King Super people really literally should be shaking in their boots. The Amazon coming into your industry is not good news. It, I think that they're just about anyone in any industry is shaking in their boots at this yeah. point about Amazon. Yeah, they're they're pretty impressive. I, I actually, you know, it's interesting to see the Whole Foods. Uh, I do listen to a podcast. Uh, it, it's an NPR podcast called how i built this and i recently listened to uh, an interview that featured the founder of whole foods talking about how they built and interesting story so if anyone wants to spend 30 minutes listening to a fun story go go look that up on on the uh, podcast uh, uh store and i can't take credit for it but uh someone that i know posted that uh 
Amazon with this uh, acquisition is becoming more and more like buy more from Wall-E. And it's pretty soon that they're going to be yeah. giving us everything we want in our, our little moving chairs. And we're going to be fat blobs that, that, that don't do anything besides uh, look at a screen and, and eat. Well, as long as we have our virtual reality goggles on, That's we, won't, right. we won't have to recognize that reality. Exactly. Um, so next story. Uh, Via West, which I think most people know is a local uh, data center and services company. Don't forget about their security arm, right? They acquired yep. uh, Applied Trust two years ago, something yep. like that. Yep. So they have a, a really large, healthy security practice here in Denver, actually in Boulder, uh, headquartered or headquartered up there doing security services. Uh, and they were sold to a, a North Carolina company for $1.675 billion. That's a lot of dollars. That's a lot of dollars. I'd take that. Yeah. So congratulations to to the, those folks. I think they actually were already owned by a private equity or, or actually they were already owned by Shaw Cable. Um, so they, right. they had already sold out quite a, quite a ways ago. But um, I, I still consider them a Denver company, though. Yeah. Well, and they are headquartered here. Bio West part is headquartered here. And uh, I think they'll remain that way as well. So uh, another Denver headquartered company is called Notion. Uh, if you go to getnotion.com, you can take, take a look at them. They are a... Uh, a Denver-based smart home company, um, and what they do is they create little sensors that go in your house that sense uh, if there's smoke, if there's a change in uh, humidity, moisture. Um, there was like carbon monoxide sensors that you can put in your house that will you know alert your cell phone and let you know if something bad's going on in your in your home. Uh, I also saw that they have uh, surface tension sensors, and that that really it, uh, it detects when you and your wife are, are having issues. Is yeah. that that's what that does, right? So it's just $200 to buy these <laughs> sensors. So, you know, better, cheaper than couples therapy, right? Exactly. So, so anyway, Notion has taken on a $10 million investment round to help them scale. So this is kind of interesting news here in the Denver area. Yeah, it is uh, definitely interesting. Not a direct uh, security play here, but I think that, uh, you know, one thing that is very important with any of the Internet of Things sorts of devices is privacy, um, you know, are they uh, are, are they properly securing these devices? Um, how are they securing the data that they're collecting with right. all these devices? Um, if someone knows when I come home, knows when I leave, um, you know, knows a lot of information about how my family operates, I'd want to make sure that that data is private and secure. So I do have a quote here from the um, from the article. Um, the additional funding is going to allow them to amplify their relationships with insurance companies. Um, so basically, it looks like the idea is that they're going to try and get insurance companies to offer discounts to to, to policyholders who put these in their home and, and keep an eye on stuff. So I've had, you know, I've had, a, we've talked about it, a couple of floods in my basement in the past. It makes perfect sense for me to go spend a couple hundred dollars, put a sensor in there and keep an eye on it. But there are security concerns, right? So for the many security uh, practices in town, guys, they just got 10 million bucks. This might be a t good time to reach yes. out and see if they if they could use a, a pen test or a security assessment. Maybe they need a, a CISO as a service. Uh, so I'm sure there are, we'll be <laughs> receiving many calls asking for uh, help. Uh, so next on the list, uh, very close to home for me, Ping Identity had a, had a pretty good week from a, a, from a press release and a news perspective. Um, number one, uh, we were named the top tech company to work for in, in Denver in the in the large bracket. So, uh, Denver Business Journal had uh, numerous different competitions for uh, small, medium, large, and then extra large companies in the area. De uh, Ping Identity falls into the extra large because of how many employees we have here in Denver. Uh, we were named four overall, but the number one in terms of tech companies as a place for employees to work. You know, that, that's pretty surprising based on how horrible I've heard you say it is to work there. Yeah, I, generally off the air when I make those comments, <laughs> right? Um, so Alex is going to try and get me in trouble. Ping Identity is a fantastic place to work, and we'll talk more about that when we get to the jobs section. Uh, uh, we, we, I, no, congratulations. It's, it's a great place to work from all I've heard. Um, being number four, especially number one tech company, um, that that's wonderful news. Uh, so it's a you second, all get a job there. <laughs> thank you. Uh, a second piece of news uh, for about paying this week, we were named a leader in the Gartner Magic Quadrant for identity, or excuse me, for access management. You know, it, we talk about this from all the companies. This is a, um, I'll tell you, if you work at one of these companies, the whole Gartner Magic Quadrant process is is taken very, very seriously. We know that customers are looking at that. So uh, it's a, it's a big thing. It's something we are, we're rightly pretty proud of when it gets there. So um, you ping was not too long ago um, 
bought out by a different private equity mm-hmm. company. So all that money that you guys got from uh, the buyout, you used to, to buy your spot on the Gartner Quadrant. Is that how that works? Um, if it worked that way, there there would it would be a whole lot different process. I'll say that. So no. Just kidding. Just <laughs> kidding. Uh, Gartner. Just, <laughs> full disclosure. <laughs> no, it's not how it works. Uh, again, congratulations. Um it does take a lot of work to uh, to make that those uh, magic quadrants, not in the, the monetary sense, but uh, having good products and proving that you have good products. Uh, so next on the list, um, there was an article about uh, women leaders, and it, it was nice that they, they highlighted a number of uh, women in technology. Uh, in technology in Colorado. But uh, two of the folks that they highlighted were from ProtectWise and WebRoot. So it was good to see that yeah. security was represented. So there. it was only five people throughout the area um, that they were highlighting women who have you know been successful and kind of serve as role models for uh, folks in general. And like you said, two of those five were from security companies. And I think that's worth commenting on. And, and definitely kudos both to ProtectWise and WebRoot for being supportive of an inclusive uh, environment. And hopefully they can help, you know, help, help drive that inclusiveness throughout the industry. Uh, next on the list, uh, logarithm wins a gold on the Gartner peer insights. Um, again, I'll say they must've paid a whole lot of money for that. <laughs> um, no, but congratulations to, to logarithm, um, for full disclosure, I'm a logarithm customer and, uh, I would completely agree that, that they deserve this award. Yeah. So the peer insights award is really a, uh, it's a poll taken of security professionals at, at and it says, you know, how happy are you with this different vendor? Um, it takes into account both the uh, the number of people who reviewed each of the products and the overall rating per product. So this is not a, you know, some panel out there that says this is the best product. It's actual customers who really were happy with Logarithm. Yeah. So, and I think that's really important. Um, getting feedback from actual customers is a lot better than uh, some of the, uh, you know, top 500 lists that we talk about here on the show where, yeah. you know, some marketing person submits a, a an application and you get put on the top 500 yeah. list. Uh, so next, uh, Optive, they hired a number of uh, industry veterans to help uh, forward their uh, their cause. So Honorban Chakravarti uh, was hired as Senior Vice President of Wor- Worldwide Partner Solutions Michael Lyons uh, was hired as Vice President of Strategy, Risk, and Compliance Advisory Services. And Doug Steelman was hired as Vice President for Managed Security Services. So, you know, I don't I don't know two of those guys, but I do know Michael Lyons. Michael is a Colorado guy, and a big shout out to Michael. Uh, pretty, uh, glad to see, you, you know, you landed well here with Optiv. Uh, he was the CISO at Harland Financial Solutions, or it might have been DNH when he was hired. Um, that kind of followed me when I was there. I uh, heard nothing but good things about him. Uh, congratulations. Michael has actually talked at RMISC either two or three times over the last couple of years. Um, so really nice to see a security guy here from Colorado uh, make a nice step like that. Yeah, and it's always good to see uh, Optiv continuing to grow. Yep. So congratulations on both sides there. Uh, final news story for this week. We actually have a link in here to a logarithm blog, um, which is around reactions to Trump's executive order on cybersecurity. Um, not to get too political or anything, but, um, <laughs> I, I, I'm usually dubious of things that come out of the Trump administration. Um, this one actually was not too bad. Um, I, I think based on what you, what it's stated in the article though, is, uh, words are one thing, you know, right. you really need to back it up with some funding and other things yeah. to make sure that it's going to happen. Yeah. And, and as you read through, you know, I'd recommend you guys take a, take a look. James Carter, the CISO at Logarithm was one of the one of the panelists kind of talking about this topic. Um, I think his point, as you just said, was, yes, these things sound fine, but are you going to give it the funding? Are we going to deliver results? And let's, let's see where we are 12 months from now. Yep. And uh, sort of uh, preview to the future. We do have an upcoming interview, not today, but in a, a future episode with, with James on the podcast. Yeah. appreciate that. Uh, all right, let's go ahead and dive into upcoming events. Just as a reminder, as, a, as we've said the last couple of weeks, we do have a calendar on the website. Go to colorado-security.com, click on security events. It'll show you not only the events over the next week or two, but also the events really over the next six months. So take a look there. Uh, you can see what's going on and get your own stuff scheduled. So first on the list, Optiv on the 20th, uh, which I believe is Tuesday. They're having their annual Denver Enterprise Security Summit. Um, so they've got a, a bunch of uh, folks lined up to speak on that. It's an all-day event. So if you have, have interest, go ahead and check that out. 
On the 22nd, we have the ISSA Denver Healthcare Special Interest Group. They're going to be meeting at Dave & Buster's on Colorado near 25. I know registration's open there, so I recommend you guys get out there. Also on the 22nd, uh, CTA has a uh, Meet the Board event. Um, so if you want to meet yeah. uh, some of the folks on the CTA board, go ahead and head out there. I think this one specifically was Suma uh, uh, Nalapati, which is Suma is the CIO for the state of Colorado. I've had the chance to get to meet her a few times. She's fantastic. If you guys can get out there and get to meet her and get to understand more about CTA, I, I highly recommend it. Um, SecureSet on the 23rd has a Capture the Flag event. They actually have two events. We've talked about this before. They have their introduction to Capture the Flag at 5 o'clock, and then they actually have the Capture the Flag at 6 o'clock. Uh, on the 24th, the Colorado Springs ISSA is doing one of their mini seminars. Um, again, I don't know that we know the topic there, but if you need some CPAs, CPEs and uh, want to learn some stuff, go ahead and check that out. Um, so the, the following week on the 27th, uh, that, that, that's Tuesday. The ISSA Denver Women in Security meeting is happening, and that's at the Denver Fieldhouse. I know there was a little bit of confusion with an email that went out last week with incorrect information. It is at the Denver Fieldhouse. Uh, get RSVP'd now. I, last I saw, there was 80 people registered. It's going to be another great Women in Security event. Highly recommend you guys take a look. So on the 28th and 29th, uh, Cybersecurity World, which I believe is a MISTI event, uh, is going to be in Denver. I think that's the first time that they're here. I, I don't believe first I've ever heard of. Yeah. I yeah. If they've been here before, I, I wasn't aware. So um, good to see another event coming here to Colorado. Uh, looks like there's some interesting speakers there. Um, it is a for pay event. So right. uh, definitely check that out if you're interested in going. And and really over the second day of that is the Avanta CXO event. Uh, I actually think it's kind of a bummer because this is a, it's likely that the audience would want to go to both of these, but Avanta does their traveling, um, executive show really focused on getting CIOs and C CISOs together talking about strategy and where they're going as a big picture. So that's on the, on the 29th. Yep. And, uh, I am on the governing board of that event. So you should all come. Um, I will be moderating, uh, and helping to don't, don't let their poor taste in governing board dissuade <laughs> you from coming. Uh, thanks Rob. Uh, so also on the 29th, uh, secure set is doing a cybersecurity career trends event. Yeah, and they're the same night that they do that. They're actually doing their open house. We we mentioned it was supposed to be the twenty the seventeenth, um, that got postponed. So it's going to going to happen the 29th that same night. Yeah. So this is their their new location, which is right by Coors Field. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's go ahead and jump over to jobs. We have a, a little bit of a trend. So we'll go over the first couple jobs, and then we'll dive into our to our theme for the week. Um, De Denver Health. This is one we we appreciate the shout out. This was sent over to us and asked us to to post. Denver Health is hiring an IS. Uh, analyst security three. Uh, so that is three times as good as an analyst one, but not quite as good as an analyst four. No, nope. so you have to know where you, where you sit there. In the exactly. Yeah. Uh, some self-reflection there to understand if you need, this is your job <laughs> or not. Uh, John's man's manville, uh, cybersecurity analyst entry level. Yeah. So if you guys are looking to get into security or, you know, someone who's graduating or wants to make a career change, this looks like a good opportunity there. Uh, we do have, so the rest of this is all themed, the security companies in Denver and, and opportunities at each of those companies. The, the, the first one I want to talk about, it's a really great opportunity and, <laughs> and it's working for just a fantastic boss and at, at a great company that was recently named uh, the best tech company to work for in Denver. Uh, number four overall for extra yeah. large companies. Yeah. So obviously ping identity, we're hiring a GRC analyst. What we're looking for here is someone with somewhere between one to three years of com of controls experience. Maybe you've got ISO controls, I, uh, SOC 2 controls, uh, FedRAM controls. We'd love to have you, talk to you about that. Uh, go ahead and apply through their website or you can send me a note personally and, and I'll make sure you get sent to the right place. Uh, Alchemy Security, they have multiple security operations roles uh, open. So uh, Joe Bennell, who we've interviewed for the podcast, yeah. um, he's the, the CEO there. So great company, uh, local here, doing uh, great managed security operations. So if you listened to the podcast last week and you said, man, I like that guy. I want to work yeah. with him. Some good opportunities. I think there was actually five positions open, including one as a manager of their operations center. So take a look, whether you're entry level or way more experienced, there might be a role for you. Uh, Red Canary. They are also looking for uh, security operations center analysts. Yes. So similar to probably similar to some of the positions at Alchemy, someone to really help uh, hands on, you know, eyes on glass working on alerts coming in. 
ProtectWise is hiring a DevOps engineer. We've talked about a couple of DevOps engineering positions in the past. Uh, ProtectWise is that you know network security visibility um, company that takes the place of SIMS for a lot of organizations. They're looking for someone to help them with their infrastructure internally. Swimlane, they're looking for an integrated marketing intern. Of course, uh, Swimlane, uh, they do uh, security uh, orchestration, orchestration yeah. and uh, automation. And yeah. automation. Thank you. I knew it was SOA. Couldn't remember what those words were. Yeah. So, so there. You know, this is obviously not a security position, but it is an entry level marketing position for a security company. You know, if you, if you're you got a friend or a, a colleague who's interested in that, we'd love to have have you guys send them over there and let them know we sent you. Uh, Cody over there was one of our early interviews and love to help them where we can. And then finally, Logarithm is hiring a senior security analyst. That would be reporting to James Carter. We've now mentioned James, what, three times on the podcast? I think he owes us something for that. Something. I, I yeah. better get like a Logarithm shirt in the mail yeah. or something. Who knows? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, anyway, I think that takes us to the end of the news for this week. Anything you want to add before we uh, throw it over to the interview? No, let's get to the interview. Yeah, so Dave Nevetta, uh, he's the information security lawyer at Norton Rose Fulbright. Fulbright. Yep. Yes. Yeah, so I had a great conversation with Dave. Um, he's a, a longtime uh, local Denver person. Um, he used to have his own firm, is now with a large firm, so it should be a good interview. I haven't listened to the interview yet, but I'm going to put my uh, my prognostication uh, hat on and say, you talk about cybersecurity insurance a little bit. We did talk a little bit about yeah. cybersecurity insurance. Yeah. Yep. Well, good stuff. All right. Well, thanks, Alex. We appreciate it. We'll, we'll come back to you guys and talk next week and enjoy, uh, enjoy your week. Thanks, Rob. Hi, this is Chris Martinez, CISO at Digital Globe. Welcome to Colorado Equals Security. For Colorado security professionals, buy Colorado security professionals. This is Alex Wood with the Colorado Equals Security podcast, and uh, I am here with Dave Nevetta. Uh, I've known Dave for a number of years. Dave's a, a cybersecurity lawyer here in town, and uh, we're going to talk about a number of issues today. I'm pretty excited about that. Um, but first, Dave, why don't you introduce yourself um, and give us a little background on, on what you do and, and how you got here today. Thank you. Uh, as mentioned, my name is David Nevetta. I am the partner at uh, the law firm Norton Rose Fulbright, and I'm the co-chair in the U.S. for the, their data protection, privacy, and cybersecurity work, uh, group. Um, I've been doing this uh, area of law, practicing this area of law since about 2002. Um, I started out um, in this area working at uh, AIG and uh, helped them develop their cyber insurance program uh, around uh, 2002 to 2005. Since then, I struck off and started my own firm uh, called the Info Law Group in around 2009, uh, and then in 2014 joined Norton Rose Fulbright, where a firm with about 4,000 lawyers worldwide, um, and we have approximately 12 to 15 people in the U.S. that do data security and privacy work, and globally it's probably 60 to 70 people that do this type of work. Awesome. So when you say you guys do data security and privacy work at the law firm, what does that really entail? What sort of services, what kind of things do you deal with for, with your clients? Yeah, so uh, on, on some level, data security and privacy is a narrow specialty, but it's also very broad and touches a lot of different uh, areas. So uh, you know, when we, we practice and we, uh, and we break our practice down into four pillars, the first pillar is, is compliance-related work. So. Uh, this is policy work, uh, whether it be privacy uh, or data security policies. It's also work uh, that involves helping companies uh, with privacy by design and security by design when they're developing various products and services. So we help them understand their risks, understand what they need to do to make their products and services compliant from a privacy and security point of view. Uh, the second pillar is transactional. So as everyone is aware, organizations outsource a lot of their data processing uh, activities to third parties um, and there are legal issues that arise when you do that type of processing uh, so we help companies develop vendor management programs to uh, analyze their vendors data security and privacy practices we help negotiate the terms around data security and privacy in these contracts um, the, that type of activity increasingly um, the data security and privacy issues are coming up in the mergers and acquisition context as well. Um, and in fact, we saw that with the, uh, the Yahoo merger where there was an issue there. Um, just, just a minor one, only, <laughs> what was it, only 250 million or something? Three, 350 million, so uh, they got off cheap. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, but you know, increasingly when a company is buying another company, they, they're also figuring out whether or not they're buying a data breach or whether they're buying data that they'd like to leverage that is actually encumbered on some level, personal information or other types of data. So we come in and help with the due diligence process oftentimes. Uh, and then there's a fourth, third pillar, which is uh, incident response. So um, that is, um, you know, data breaches occur. We're uh, kind of one of the first responders typically. Uh, we get calls uh, often in the middle of the night, often Friday around four o'clock is when we usually get our calls uh, for uh, data breaches. Um, and so we help companies handle the process, we help them with the investigation by bringing in forensic resources. In certain cases, there may be notification obligations that need to be addressed, and we help with that process as well. As part of incident response, um, we uh, have increasingly been doing incident response planning. Um, so we're helping companies who now, uh, their philosophy is essentially to assume they're gonna have a breach, or some even assume they have had a breach, and they want to develop their internal policies to address that. Again, we're coming at it from the legal side of the equation. Um, so uh, there are um, you know, obviously forensic and technical issues there, but our planning is, is broader and more, more holistic and brings in a lot of different stakeholders, whether it be legal, security, IT, privacy, risk management, uh, PR and communications. Um, we bring all of those stakeholders together in these plans to to get them ready uh, for a breach response should they have one. And then the fourth pillar, which we're seeing more and more activity, is, is the disputes pillar. So uh, that's regulatory uh, action defense and regulatory investigations that occur as a result of data or privacy violations, and of course litigation that arises out of uh, data security and privacy. We've, we've seen those class action litigations uh, being filed in uh, consumer-related cases, uh, whether it be credit card or social security numbers. Um, we're seeing banks increasingly sue companies, uh, retailers, after they've been hit with credit card breaches. Um, but we're also seeing business-to-business -business type lawsuits where, uh, as I mentioned before, a service provider perhaps has a breach uh, which is ultimately the responsible responsibility of the data owner and there could be a lawsuit back to the service provider for failing to protect the information. We're seeing uh, lawsuits uh, and activity in the directors and officers context, so uh, shareholders and others uh, going after boards of directors and officers uh, for failing to uh, disclose security weaknesses or otherwise uh, put security measures in place as part of a duty of care uh, in their role as a director or officer of a company. So um, uh, there's an uptick in that area as well. So it's a, it's a very fluid and dynamic uh, practice and, and world we live in. Uh, I, I enjoy it because um, you know the law and technology and security uh, they kind of collide into each other and warp each other and kind of uh, create questions that no one really thinks about until uh, they're, they're forced to think about it uh, oftentimes uh, we try to of course be more proactive and anticipate some of these issues but uh, just the, the warping effect of the law uh, on technology and vice versa in my mind is really fascinating and, and makes this practice um, never boring at the end of the day. I've got to imagine that you're always seeing something new. Um, something that sparked my interest there is um, the, the, you mentioned the suits against um, boards of directors. Um, do you see the attitudes of boards of directors changing? Um, are, are these lawsuits forcing them to think more about cybersecurity for their companies? Yeah, I think that's that's happening. So in 2013, we had the Target breach, um, and it was one of the first times where we saw officers and directors, you know, essentially losing their jobs over data security and privacy issues, right? Um, and in fact, I have a, a chart in one of my presentations that shows the cyber cyber insurance spend over time, uh, and it's it's a you know it, it's an increasing trend line. But when you hit 2000 end of 2013, when uh, the officers and directors were starting to lose their jobs, all of a sudden that trend line spikes, right? So um, the risk all of a sudden became more real in a way when people start losing their jobs. So I think over time what we're seeing is a, uh, is a situation where previously, you know, general counsel or CFOs or CSOs of companies would try to push this issue up to the board. Uh, now it's being pushed you know, down to the, the officers and the board is being more proactive about asking questions and wanting more information on these topics. So I think there's, a, there's been a, a little bit of a switch there in terms of the push and pull around uh, you know, raising this issue at that board level. 
do you guys get involved in that area in terms of uh, you know being more proactive? You mentioned you guys trying to help people be proactive. So, you know, a board might get more interested in cybersecurity. Would they bring you guys in to uh, to help make sure that their program is uh, functioning correctly? Or uh, yeah, uh, you know, again, at the board level, the questions and issues are higher. They're more strategic. Um, and also more tied into you know financial performance and financial impact of the company. So um, we do get involved in, in helping advise boards and uh, uh, and helping them understanding to help them understand how cybersecurity, data security related issues impact could impact their organization. Typically, we work with a, like a GC or, or a CFO or some other officer who regularly reports to the board. And one of the topics they're increasingly reporting on, either because they're again pushing it up or being asked to report on it by the board itself, is data security and privacy, and really what is the nexus between financial performance uh, and uh, you know what could go wrong essentially, uh, in, a, in a kind of a worst case scenario that could have a financial material financial impact to the company. The uh, that conversation and, and kind of prepping a board and, and, and presenting to the board is is, is interesting because. Um, you know, it, it's kind of like, like everywhere, everything else in this space, there's a translation process that has to occur, right? I mean, you're not going to tell the board, you know, the, the nitty-gritty details of the data security and privacy program and, and the technical aspects of it. Um, when you're communicating to them, you're looking at bigger picture issues, you're looking at, um, you know, what could financially impact the company and what do we need to address that. Often, you know, goes to budget and personnel, those types of things. Uh, so, you know, that process of packaging the information in a way that um, is relevant to the board, but also understandable to the board uh, is, is what we get involved in and, and actually can sometimes be a challenge. I mean, boards sometimes are made up of people who've been around the block a few times. They may have you know very general business uh, kind of backgrounds, but not technical backgrounds. Um, and so that translation process is really important there. And, uh, you know, even, even having them ask, you know, arming them with the right questions to ask sometimes can be a challenge. So, I mean, you, know, you have to work with that in that context and try to have that conversation and enhance it as much as possible. Um, do you see boards being more interested in things like cyber insurance? You know, you mentioned earlier that uh, you started your career doing, or early in your career you were with AIG doing cyber insurance. Yep. Um, you know, I used to think cyber insurance was just kind of hokey. It's like, oh, you don't want to, you don't actually do any protections. You, you know, you just want to cover some financial risk. Yeah. Um, do you see it at the board level? People more interested in that that type of coverage? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, there's actually SEC guidance out there around reporting cybersecurity incidents and cybersecurity, uh, you know, weaknesses in general uh, with respect to financial statements. Um, so that guidance basically says if there's a you know a security weakness or has been a security breach that could cause a material financial impact to the company, it should be reported on a public company's financial statements, right? So, uh, what, what, and actually that, that SEC guidance actually mentions cyber insurance is, is one component for managing the risk. So, the way you can look at it is you could have a situation where there may be a, you know, security issues or vulnerabilities a company may have, or maybe they had some sort of breach, um, and they're, they're holding on to a certain level of risk. A financial risk uh, that that risk could be material to the organization. One way to make it less material um, is to buy insurance. Um, so, um, if you have a situation where you know you know there could be a, ser a severe business interruption, or you know like in, in the case of Target where uh, you know 45 million records were exposed, um, you know having 200 million dollars of insurance or more to help cover that can help uh, mitigate the financial risk and, and perhaps uh, mitigate you know, reporting obligations potentially around the security and privacy. So I think boards um, are looking at, at cyber insurance as a, a tool to help them manage that issue and manage that risk and, and um, decrease you know, the materiality of a potential data breach uh, with respect to their financial statements. How do you see the, uh, that cybersecurity insurance market evolving? Um, you know, a number of years back, uh, I looked through a number of the, the questionnaires and other things like that, and you know, they'd ask very simple questions. Um, and you're like, how, you know, how can you even tell if I'm secure or not? How can you, um, yeah. you know, what level of coverage do I need? And, and you know, if, if I go one place, I'm going to have a, you know, a small premium and, and cover what I think I'm going to need to get covered. And, uh, you know, somewhere else, it's, you know, a really high premium for all, covering almost nothing, things like that. 
Yeah. Um, the other piece that I've seen is that it seems like the, the coverages are getting um, more finite. So it's, hey, you know, you have a rider for business email compromise now. You have a rider for, you know, all these little pieces that are, are, are part of, um, you know, cyber issues. But, yeah. um, so I'm just curious what you see in that, in that marketplace, how it's evolving, how it's maturing. Yeah, it's uh, it's still an interesting space um, in many ways. Uh, you know, the evolution of it is is you know, often driven by the competition that exists in the market, and you know uh, there are a lot of players in that market. And it, uh, the pricing, in fact, over time, I believe, uh, has gone down because of the competition uh, in the market for this for this type of uh, coverage. And many carriers are in there wanting to get in the game, and therefore they're offering broader coverage. They're offering coverage for cheaper. Um, now, going to your question about underwriting, you know, are, are they understanding the risks? Are they are they truly kind of able to analyze the risks? I mean, I, I, I query whether anyone really is able to analyze <laughs> and understand the risks fully. But uh, at the end of the day, competition has a, a, a play there as well. I mean, uh, you know, barriers to entry, uh, making it easy for an insurer to fill out an application and get you know uh, validated for the insurance plays into the sales cycle and you know you know companies started out in this space when I was at AIG we had uh, actually third party vendors doing assessments and helping us figure out exactly what a company looked like um, but that was a, a long you know longer process more you know, like uh, looking out of the hood and onerous for the for the potential customer and brokers insurance brokers actually pushed back on that uh, and so over time the, the in many cases the process for uh, underwriting the insurance became simpler, uh, easier, and I think many security professionals then looked at these applications and said, how can this company, insurance company, know really anything about our security? They've asked 10 questions. Uh, and again, that was a, sort of the product of competition and, and what the brokers who represent the carrier, the insurance, wanted to make it an easier process. Um, now that all said, I, I started in 2002 and that was before there were even data breach laws. Uh, so you know, at that point in time, we were trying to develop the product, the cyber insurance product. You know, the demand for it was was heavily questioned out in the market. Uh, you know, why do we need this? What is this for? You know, are there any real liabilities or risks? If a breach happens, you know, we'll just deal with it. No one needs to know that type of thing. Now, of course, 2003 breach laws came into effect, and that opened uh, you know some sunshine onto the certainly personal information breaches. But now, you know, where are we now? It's 2017. So companies like AIG and, and Chubb and, and Beasley companies that have been in the space for you know uh, you know 15 years now have data. I mean they have information. So even if they aren't asking you know, uh, you know 80 question questionnaires around security and having a third party vendor come in and do some analysis, they've got history and they've got their own criteria and data to know exactly what their you know risk levels are, where to put their premium, uh, and you know what's going to be profitable or not profitable. So. I think right now, um, many of the carriers who have been there for a while are pretty comfortable with the risk. Um, uh, some of the newer carriers are coming out with products that are, you know, even having broader coverages uh, and, and trying to, you know, buy some market space. Now you have to, you know, have to kind of judge whether you want to go with someone who's been around the block or, or someone who's newer and cheaper. I mean, that's a question that comes up. Some of those bells and whistles you mentioned before, kind of these riders and things like that are actually intended to help. Uh, fill in you know potential gaps around the coverage that may you know, be traditionally provided. So, you know we're seeing uh, issues around coverage. For for example, uh, there's been a lot of wire transfer fraud that can arise out of a data breach. Um, so, that's not personal information being taken, but the person in payroll getting fished or social engineered and sending out you know five million dollars a, a, a check or something like that to some bank account. Um, and so you know. There wasn't traditionally coverage under a you know, regular cyber program, so now some companies are adding riders for wire transfer fraud that uh, would you know, reimburse some of the amounts that could be transferred out, that type of thing. Um, business interruption. We just uh, uh, we had the WannaCry virus recently, and people were shutting down their systems and unplugging things to spread the virus, or not spread it, to contain the spread of the, uh, of the ransomware. Uh, and so obviously that causes business interruption. And so now, you know, there's been coverage for business interruption for a long time. Now many companies are looking at that more carefully and saying, hey, maybe that's what we really need. If, our, if we go down for a long period of time, what's our financial impact and what's our revenue loss? Maybe that's a good coverage to get. So I think the, the market has, uh, you know, again, it's competitive, it's fluid. 
and I think the competition has been good for insureds because it's been it's cheaper, it's broader coverage, and they're trying to plug kind of like obvious gaps that uh, may have been missed in the, in the past. So. Um Beyond them uh, having an engagement with you to get more information, what would you recommend to someone who might be in the market looking for cyber insurance? You know, how, how is it that you need to go about comparing? Um, you know, what other uh, criteria do you need to look at from from these vendors? Yeah, one of the the competition I've mentioned is good, but what is I don't know, say bad, but one of the things that is challenging is that still the the forms and the various coverages and the wordings are, are often very different from insurer to insurer. You know, property coverage and commercial general liability coverage has been around for you know, 200 years, and over time, the, the wordings all kind of became similar, very similar, and you could just compare a few points, and you know, had apples to apples comparison across various insurers. Cyber is still, you know, your apples, oranges, pears, grapes. <laughs> um, and so, you know, there, my advice, is, is typically get a good broker, a broker that actually knows cyber insurance. Um, uh, again, that's an evolution in and of itself. Many, many brokers kind of just do you know, general placement of insurance across all lines. They're not specialists, um, but now increasingly there are uh, specialists, that not, certainly at the big brokerages like Aon and Marsh and, and Willis, uh, but now at mid, mid-level brokers, uh, like there's IMA here in town in Denver, they have specialists on board and, and Increasingly, it's being pushed down to even you know very small small brokerages who deal with small businesses and middle market type businesses. So, um, you know, they're they're the best source to under, help understand. They they see the entire market across all of their clients, and they get a sense of what's good, what's bad, what the pricing is, uh, and they're usually the best bet to get a good sense of what you might need or not need. Now, when you need it or when you don't need it, it goes back to some of those board issues we talked about, whether it's a board or just a management decision. Um, you know, what is your risk? What does the financial risk look like? What happens if there's a breach? Um, do we have the resources? Do we uh, have people that we can bring in? Part of the benefit of the coverage is the, and this is where we get brought in oftentimes in, in many cases, uh, is the first party coverage, data breach response coverage, which it's not just a financial product. Of course, it does pay for the things that happen in a breach, but they actually bring a team in, right, to help companies deal with the breach. And that's what, you know, we're, we're a first incident responder through most of the cyber insurance products out there. And we get calls and we have a hotline uh, and we, we're usually responding within minutes of getting a call, our, our team, in order to be able to help companies, you know, in the emergency situation get their bearings, understand you know what they may need to do, what they don't want to do, and keep them on a track that doesn't get them into trouble. Um, and so that that is a benefit of the insurance uh, that people don't necessarily know about. It's not just a, a paycheck that's you know, get, being given to you after something's happened. It's actually getting people on the ground and know what they're doing. You know, we've seen thousands of breaches over time. I've handled uh, me and my team. And so to have someone who can help a company experiencing it for the first time look around the corner, understand the, the, the pitfalls and you know, the directions and th- things to do and things to avoid uh, can be really, really helpful and help that company avoid liability, help it avoid reputational loss, help it avoid regulatory scrutiny. So that's a benefit of the, of the cyber insurance I think uh, a lot of companies are looking at is, is a very attractive in, in addition to the financial kind of reimbursement aspect of it. Awesome. Um, switching gears slightly, you know, you mentioned earlier the the interesting relationship between the law and technology. Um, there have been a number of new and proposed laws and regulations that are out there. I think that the biggest one that comes to my mind um, is GDPR uh, in Europe. Um, what's your sense of how that's actually going to affect um, information security and privacy and how people are, how ready are people and, and what are they trying to do to get ready? Right. Yeah, so just background wise, GDPR is basically the general data protection regulation that's coming. Uh, well, it's been passed in Europe, but it's going to be starting to be enforced in May of 2018. Um, and uh, well, the, you know, I think again, the driver uh, for companies that and, and why they're worried about that is first of all, a many companies are doing global business, even small companies uh, are doing more and more global business uh, jurisdictionally. Their prior European Data Protection Directive, really, you had to have a closer nexus to Europe. You had to be in Europe or have an office there. 
Uh, now, uh, with GDPR, you know, if you're targeting Europeans or, or dealing with European residents, even if you don't have a physical presence there, you, you may be subject to the, to the law, may be able to be hauled into court. So, uh, jurisdictionally, more companies are under the umbrella of GDPR. Uh, plus, uh, a violation of GDPR um, could be a, um, a fine or penalty up to, I think, it's 4% of the organization's global revenue. So, um, you know, big companies with a lot of global revenue, uh, 4% could be a very, very significant issue. Uh, so, uh, again, going back to the board, boards are interested in avoiding uh, that type of penalty. Uh, boards want to do uh, business in Europe, and, uh, you know, this is a, a threshold to be able to do that type of business, is to have this type of compliance. Uh, and so companies, are, uh, U.S. companies especially, who already have more of a, I would also say, culture of compliance in many cases, are, are interested, looking at, and engaging in these GDPR projects. Um, uh, the projects, so there's a security component and a, and a privacy component to it, both at the end of the day. Um, but what's interesting about them is um, they require uh, kind of very, again, this is all around personal information, which is a broader concept out there. Um, but they require a very intensive kind of data mapping uh, of, of the organization. So, uh, and it's, it's sort of a different type of data mapping um, as well. So, I think. Many organizations and security departments and, and CISOs and CSOs I talk to, um, you know, they will, in many cases, especially for complex organizations, uh, perhaps admit that they don't necessarily have a full understanding of where all their data is and, uh, you know, the scope of their systems and, and where the network ends and, you know, uh, where the things kind of may be missing in terms of gaps. Um, this process requires you to actually go through um, every area where you're touching personal information and analyze from the collection of that information to the disposal of it, where it is, uh, who's touching it, what consents have been obtained, um, how you're using the data. Um, so uh, I think it's, it's, a bit, it's a very illuminating exercise and very intensive exercise to get a full understanding of all of the data processes that touch personal information within an organization. Uh, and all of those factors that uh, tie back into the GDPR, consent, uh, access, um, ability to, you know, right to forget and ability to delete data, all of those things, um, once you go through the process of actually doing that data mapping, you get a, a really good visibility of what your company is doing and how the data flows and uh, where it's being touched and stored and processed, uh, how it's being handled, who it's being disclosed to that actually could be helpful for a lot of different things. It could be helpful for security, of course. It could be helpful from a marketing perspective to, to know what data you have and where it is and what you can do with it. Um, and so companies, I, I think, uh, even though it's a painful and pretty expensive process to go through, uh, the, the net benefit of it, once you go through it, is uh, much more understand, better understanding and better visibility as to what the company's really doing with data. Um, so we're seeing many, many companies going down that path and, and trying to get their arms around it, all, all because of, uh, I think, those fines and penalties that are possible. Do you see that, uh, you know, this is obviously focused on European citizens, um, but if you're a, um, you know, a multinational global kind of company and you have to comply with that, do you see these companies trying to apply the same protections that they're going to have to put in for GDPR to their whole set of data? Um, you know, do you think this is going to have an impact positively on, you know, people in the U.S. or other countries that are, are not affected by GDPR, but, you know, companies that are, you know, now um, they're doing extra measures to protect my data, not just European yeah. citizens' data. And, and many times these, these, you know, a standard like this that has an impact, uh, you know, uh, in Europe, but also globally, is used as often, you know, the lowest common denominator. In fact, you know, when California passed the first breach law, uh, you know, 48 other states now have breach laws, and California was the model. But even if there weren't breach laws in, in these other states, the fact that California, you know, the eighth largest, I think, economy in the world ultimately, had a law, uh, required, basically essentially created a national law in a sense. And so I think the GDPR is having the same effect, right? I mean, it's such an important economic jurisdiction, um, and it's creating a standard that once you comply with it, um, you know, assuming it's the most protective in a way, uh, you're often satisfying other standards that may exist in other jurisdictions. And in fact, 
that's one of the benefits of going through this process. I mean, you're not just, when you look at a process for collecting information, say, uh, your company collecting you know, information on a website or whatever, e-commerce website, you're collecting information from people all over the world, you're handling it in the same way, ultimately. And so, even though you're looking at it from a GDR, GDPR perspective, now you know, okay, with respect to, you know, say South Korea or Australia or something like that, we can look at what we're doing with this information and we can map it against their laws and understand whether we have issues and compliance concerns there. So um, again, that's a kind of a benefit of doing this exercise is getting that visibility and, and perhaps having sort of a common denominator that you can apply across you know, different business processes and different jurisdictions. So a little bit closer to home, uh, in the U.S., there's been a lot of, of recent um, either legislation or proposed legislation, um, you know, from the most recent uh, presidential executive order around cybersecurity. Um, you know, there's the, uh, what they're calling, I think, the Patch Act, which is going through Congress right now regarding potential uh, for people to do hackbacks and, and other things like that. Um, I just wanted to get your opinion on the state of cybersecurity legislation in the U.S., um, and if, if you feel like these efforts that are, are happening now are, are going to help um, or even hinder or, you know, cause cybersecurity in this country to maybe go sideways, who knows? Yeah, I, I mean, the U.S. is still, uh, when it comes to passing legislation in this area, I mean, not as sophisticated or not as mature as I think in Europe and other places. Uh, first of all, I mean, it seems impossible to pass any kind of actual uh, statute, regardless of what the you know the, the subject matter is. Uh, there's always the proposed res re resolutions and regulations on data security and privacy, and uh, there's kind of a big splash when someone sort of says, "Yeah, here's the new you know law we want to pass," and then the question becomes whether it ever does pass. Um, and, and again, that's kind of our form of government. There are a lot of competing interests whenever any of these laws come into effect. Uh, or even are proposed, actually, uh, the, whether they, they will pass. So, um, you know, we've seen regulation on the state level in, in many cases. Uh, we also have seen regulators who have broad authority, like the FCC or the FTC, kind of use that authority uh, to legislate by enforcement, in, in essence. So, uh, this is why I say the FTC does, is that they, you know, they have general uh, uh, authority over unfair and deceptive trade practices, which again is a very broad term. Uh, and what they do sometimes is they see something they don't like in the security realm and they'll make an example of a company and set up a guidepost or a goalpost to say, hey, this is something we don't like, this is something that you shouldn't do, could be an unfair business practice or a deceptive business practice. Uh, and even though a law hasn't been passed, the effect is companies say, okay, well, that's, that's the new thing we can't do or that's the new thing we have to do. Uh, per the FTC. So, uh, you know, even though we haven't had many actual data security, comprehensive data security and privacy laws passed, certainly, I mean, what HIPAA and Graham Lee Spiley were in 1999 and 2000, that era, it hasn't really been much since on the federal level from a, from a, a broad standpoint. Uh, but even though we haven't had that, you know, regulators have stepped in um, and state, 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 state uh, legislators have stepped in and passed some laws. Um, now, will we ever have anything like GDPR, a comprehensive, uh, you know, federal data protection law? I, uh, I think something really, really bad would have to happen for that to, to be the case. And you know, again, WannaCry uh, wasn't ultimately. I mean, the uh, impact of it wasn't so bad financially, but something like that that would really bring down the the, the economy on some level could result in something uh, where we get a federal law of some sort out there. Um, you know, again, what will be interesting is, and this is just me kind of riffing on, on some of these issues I'm seeing, like, you know, the Internet of Things and uh, kind of the uh, connectivity of, of, of things and our infrastructure kind of expanding, whether it be, uh, you know, uh, automated cars or what have you. Um, I, the way I see things kind of evolving is I, we're, we're kind of making ourselves, as this technology comes on, more and more vulnerable in many ways. We're expanding the points of entry in terms of, where attacks can happen, as well as uh, you know, probably expanding what the impacts of the attacks could be. Right? Um, you know, we're dealing with a company. Uh, it was kind of through the WannaCry experience. Uh, this is a healthcare entity, and they're looking at their medical devices and saying, "Wow, we've got you know, CAT scans that are you know, running unpatched versions of Windows that are vulnerable." 
to you know potential breaches uh, that could impact you know actual patient health, right? And so, um, how are we going to deal with this problem? We you know this vulnerability exists. It's, should the manufacturers be doing something? Should you know is it our responsibility? Well, you know, how do we even patch an MRI machine where we don't even really know you know the details of the software and what if we try to patch it ourselves? Are we going to render the machine inoperable or dangerous even? So. Um, those are areas where we might see potentially some some legislation where there's going to be, a, you know, a material either financial or uh, kind of economic or even bodily injury type impact uh, is where we might see some more activity. But uh, again, I just think that the way our government works, unfortunately, and kind of the competing interests on both sides and the uh, you know, kind of standstill that we have in terms of actually passing meaningful laws is going to prevent anything coming out of Congress anytime soon that is uh, that is big picture in my mind. So do you think that we'll have to see some sort of, uh, hopefully not catastrophic, but some sort of event happen before yes. uh, this, this sort of legislation goes forward? I do. I think, I think uh, you know, power grid going out or, you know, uh, a wanna cry situation where, uh, you know, it's uh, very difficult to unwind and you know have business interruption occurring that is, is, is very significant um, um, you know kind of a, a mass attack with the internet of thing type modality to it would also do, probably be part of it uh, you know we've seen the you know the DDoS cannons arise by taking over various devices some sort of big entity getting knocked down with some sort of DDoS attack in that context I mean something Something, and then of course there would have to be, uh, if there's some bodily injury or property damage, I think those are things that will uh, ultimately, unfortunately, get the attention of legislatures. Short of, of new legislation, do you, are there any areas where you see um, potential for improving those kind of situations in the short term? You know, whether it's um, you know standards bodies or you know working groups, other things like that. Yeah, I think. Um, I think standard bodies and, and groups that provide um, baseline standards of care, uh, or you know, or at least again, guideposts for companies, frameworks for companies to work on, are, are extremely important. Um, from legal point of view, uh, we always tell our clients, you know, you, you, you should definitely develop your security program. Ten, you know, uh, make it sure, make sure it addresses your specific issues and customize it for your organization. But have a framework or a standard we can point to. So if something goes wrong. It's not an ad hoc process that we're talking about here. We can say, oh yeah, they were they were tying this to the NIST standard, or they were basing that an ISO standard. Um, so I think those those bodies, those those kind of guidance documents that can help create uh, standards and help companies kind of tether themselves on some level to something you know objective in a sense um, are really important. Um, the other thing, again, they, a lot of this, uh, what we're seeing around security and privacy is driven uh, by market forces as well. I mean, um, so, you know, I, I gave you the example of, of a medical uh, institution. Uh, obviously, they're buyers of medical devices, so, uh, you know, they, they, can, they can assert certain contractual rights and, uh, and remedies if they want, if, they, if a company wants to do business with them. We're seeing a lot of flow down of uh, data security and privacy um, uh, requirements in contracts between private parties because uh, you know uh, the you know the seller has often leverage to get some of these terms in place. So that that's a phenomenon that um, you know enhances I think uh, data security and privacy related um, standards. Um, you know again our our form of our, you know our system of of kind of government or or uh, our society in general also. I mean, we, we kind of don't like plaintiff's lawyers, but at the same time, uh, when they get traction and develop some sort of theory or liability uh, around data security and privacy, and all of a sudden they're getting class actions and getting settlements, um, that also incentivizes companies. If directors and officers are getting sued, so our legal system, uh, even though you know we on the defense side find it very annoying, uh, the plaintiffs uh, have a role and have had a role in um, shaping, um, you know, companies and their thoughts around data security and privacy as well. So, you know, it doesn't have to come from a centralized governmental authority. There are other uh, influences that are uh, impacting how companies think about data security and privacy and, you know, the steps they're taking to try to protect themselves as well as their customers, employees, and everyone else. So I imagine you've seen plenty of um, 
of lawsuits regarding you know personal data and things like that. Are you starting to see uh, any uh, any actions where it's more affecting the, the things that we were talking about? You know, physical devices and you know, hey, we're you know we're a, a group of hospitals or medical professionals or whatever it is, and um, you know we feel like you know we've been wronged because these uh, these MRIs or these uh, other medical devices now. You know, are insecure. They're they're causing us as a business yeah. harm. Other things like that. Are, are we starting to go down that route? Well, we haven't seen it. I mean, you could even say software companies, right, that uh, who allow a vulnerability to exist that could be exploited yeah. in the first place. There's always been this kind of theory of like downstream liability, right? Where where's the buck stop? Um, you know, can you go after a software company that has an unpatched vulnerability out there? What's their responsibility and liability? Um, a lot of it is contractual, and of course. So most companies out there, you know, they'll have warranties that you know only last a certain period of time, or they'll have disclaimers of liability and that type of thing. Um, so you know, it's sometimes hard ultimately to to go after kind of the downstream company that may have caused an issue. Um, we have seen it actually. It is it's still in the credit card or personal information space where um, you know point of sale vendors or companies that implement point of sale systems. Um, who uh, you know allow a breach to occur on some level? We had a, a client who um, had a pretty widespread breach, and ultimately the uh, uh, the vendor that was providing their point of sale system we discovered had been hacked, uh, which allowed the hackers to uh, access uh, via remote access all of our clients' um, you know, point of sale systems. Uh, so obviously, there we were able to you know kind of talk to that client, that that point of sale vendor, and say, hey. You were hacked. You were responsible for this. Um, you know, uh, you need to you know, uh, basically help us with the cost of having to provide notice to all these individuals and the PR and everything else. Um, so we're seeing that type of suit uh, where there's kind of more of a direct nexus between the breach and you know what ultimately happened, and, and companies start saying you, you you need to be responsible for that. Um, uh, we're seeing, you know, we're seeing breaches involving. Um, um, you know, like kind of service providers where it may be a, you know, a hotel and restaurant type uh, point of sale vendor who gets hit and you know, multiple hotels and properties are affected at the same time and oftentimes those companies, the ones that may not have the real finance or may not have the actual responsibility to notify individuals are stepping up and doing it on behalf of their customers. Um, so that's, that sometimes is occurring. Um, so. But yeah, we're still uh, not to the point where you know the software vendor or you know someone downstream who can be, be the root cause of a in, initial incident um, are getting held responsible for that yet. I, mean, I think it will happen, um, but uh, we haven't seen it quite yet. So I, I think we're getting close to the, the end of our time. I was wondering, do you have any other uh, issues that you feel like um, are top of mind or people might need to know about that we haven't talked about yet? Um, you know, just, you know, something we've been seeing a lot of and just to make people aware of, um, hackers these days, uh, the, the personal information market in many ways is flooded uh, in terms of the value of personal information and records. I mean, over the last decade, you know, practically everyone's, you know, social security number, credit card numbers are out there somewhere, right, uh, in many ways. So uh, what we've been seeing is the hackers trying to monetize uh, their their breaches uh, in different ways. So I, I analogize it to you know, the American Indian, uh, and they would they would catch a buffalo, and they would use every every part of the buffalo. Right uh, here, we're starting to see attackers who, once they get access to a system, are uh, you know using everything they can and taking every step they can to, to monetize the attack. So they may go in, and um, uh, we have a, we have a company. It's a mortgage related company. That we've seen uh, attackers try to go in and uh, intercept essentially down payments to houses. We've seen attackers go into companies and uh, do password resets for the 401k vendor that runs their employees' 401k and log in and send out the 401k proceeds. Uh, so they're trying to find a, a quicker route from you know the attack to the money. Uh, and so when they can do wire transfers, when they can uh, reroute, we have one where an employer. At a, at a hospital chain, uh, the, employee, the hospital had their employees' um, payroll checks routed to different um, accounts uh, when, when the payroll went out. So uh, 
I would say if you know companies are out there looking for things, think more, think beyond just the personal information attack. Think about where you know data could or where money could be transferred out, or money could be intercepted, or or uh, phishing attacks. We see a lot. This is if last year was the year of ransomware. This year is the year of phishing attacks. Every you know, we have had many many breaches where phishing attacks have been employed, and the attackers come in. Uh, they'll fish a couple people in the organization. They'll gather intel about who that person talks to, uh, who's in their contact list, send out another round of phishing emails, they'll send emails out to their customers, they'll spoof emails. Uh, there's been a lot of that activity over time as well that's been occurring. Um, and, and so, you know, as an organization, if you're thinking about these attacks, you have to think about all the ways that the company could potentially be exploited uh, if someone were to get access to their systems or their email, uh, that type of thing. And so. Uh, that's a trend I think we're, we're seeing um, more and more and the attackers are, you know, they're pretty ingenious in many ways and um, uh, so uh, don't, uh, if you get hacked or I think you're subject to a breach, don't assume it's one thing, assume that it could be a lot of different things and, and uh, act accordingly. That's great advice. Thanks Dave. Um, this has been great. Uh, appreciate your time and uh, thanks. Yeah, no, thank you. Appreciate the time as well. and. Um, Look forward to hearing the, the, the blog post. So if uh, if people want to get in contact with you or, or hear more about the stuff that you do, is there some place that they can go or uh, website or Yeah, it's, uh, or? well, email's the best. Uh, David.Navetta, N-A-V-E-T-T-A, at NortonRoseFulbright.com. Awesome. Thanks, right. Dave. Thank you. Learn more about the Colorado security scene at colorado-security.com, where you can see information about local security groups, a calendar of upcoming security events, and learn more about Colorado equals security. Reach out to Alex and Rob by emailing info at colorado-security.com. Until next time, remember, Colorado equals security.